Thank you, Jason. Now it is your turn, congregation. And uh, I'd like to go through John 18, verse by verse. So if you turn there with me. Only one person. The rest of you look terrified. We won't really do that. Boys and girls, we're gonna, we have a little more talking this morning. It's a little bit more sitting. It's a little bit challenging if you hang in there. Uh, maybe I'll get some cake for you. Maybe. And if you wanted to draw something to kind of decide what to uh, focus on, there is a pretty sweet scene in the passage we're about to read where Jesus says, I am, and all the soldiers and religious leaders who have come to get him fall back down. And that would be a pretty fun thing to draw. But the task to me now is to charge you in your relationship with Zach. And for that, we will stay with our current place in John chapter 18. And I am, despite the protests of my wife, even as I ascended these stairs, I am going to read the whole chapter. And you're going to get very nervous because you're watching your clock or iPhone or whatever. But I promise you, I will keep my comments brief. So let's all stand, not only out of honor for God's word, but also to stretch. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, who, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? 
And Nasan sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but the kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. San Quentin Correctional Facility is California's large and largest prison system, largest, largest single prison. It's apparently not a bad place to do time because it's so close to the Bay Area and there are so many groups that want to participate in helping the inmates that there's lots of educational programs going on all the time. And so a journalist was one among many who was offering a class for inmates on journalism and writing and gave the inmates this project, I want you to write your own obituary. And what was fascinating was how the inmates decided to envision the rest of their lives and write their obituary from the place that they were sitting in jail. You can imagine it for a moment. What do I want to be true of my life at death? What do I hope would be included in that? And for those who are trapped and suffering uh, or being punished for doing various crimes... That's a question that that has a certain degree of meaning with the hope, with the aspiration that what they've done wrong might be undone. And that was the surprising theme in all of the obituaries that were written, was this desperate attempt to hope that in the remainder of their life, the sins that they had engaged in would be atoned for. And so one young man who uh, escaped, a young Cambodian named Fen Yu, escaped the killing fields of Cambodia as a child, and came to the United States and moved from place to place and never really had much of a family or community, eventually settling in California, he linked up with a South Asian gang. Got into a fight one day, 
the fight made him incredibly angry. He wanted revenge. So it broke up, and he had to go find a weapon. So he went looking for a weapon. He eventually found a gun. Went looking for someone who looked vaguely like the gang that had attacked him earlier, wasn't even a member of the gang, opened fire. Killed that individual, hit several others, and went as a young man of 17 to prison. He's now in uh, the middle of his life, writing his obituary, what he hoped might be true of his life. And this is how he wrote his obituary, and it's very uh, similar to the other obituaries that were written by the inmates. At approximately 12.30, lifer inmate Fen Yu died from multiple stab wounds from saving the life of David Bryant, his teacher supervisor. Isn't that interesting? Here's a man who's in jail for the rest of his life for having engaged in homicide. And now he he envisions the rest of his life. And in being interviewed after writing this obituary, he says, I'm here because I've taken life. I could only hope that my life will end by being sacrificed for another. And over and over again in these obituaries, you feel the inmate reaching out, trying to describe something that will atone for and make up for the mistakes and errors that they have made. What would it be like to get to the end of one's life and to write, to kind of realize that you fulfilled the obituary you hoped for? That you didn't necessarily have to atone for such things. We recently traded in our used van for a newer used van. And it's, um, it's one of these models which has some of the bells and whistles. It was, it was kind of cool. It was accidentally priced at a regular model used price. And so we snuck in and grabbed it. But it's got so much, I'm not a big fan of technology, frankly. And it's got so much technology on that it's really not helpful. Uh, the backup camera I thought would be cool. It's the first time I've driven off my driveway <laughs> trying to use it. I kid you not. And it keeps yelling at me for violating a lane or getting too close to a car. And I'm not interested in hearing it say any of these things to me. But really the, the tip of the iceberg was the navigational system, which um, when I turned it on, uh, it says every time it actually comes on, it says proceed to the root and the root will begin. And I think, well, if I knew how to proceed to the root, I wouldn't have turned you on. I need you to tell me where to go to begin with. But as I was actually angry at the car, which doesn't really make any sense, but that's what I was experiencing, I was saying, that actually kind of reminds me of, of life. There's a, there's a sense in my experience of Christ that I wish that there are times where I, I read and I pray and I just try to draw near to Him and I find myself in a place where I don't really know necessarily what the right thing is to do or how should I invest. And I, and I feel like the answer is, well, proceed to the root and uh, your navigational system will begin. I said, well, I'm, I wouldn't be asking if I knew how to get to that, to that root. John, John 18, we're actually going to come back to the inmates at the end of the sermon, but this notion that uh, of, of wrestling with who Jesus is and how to follow him in the midst of this world comes to a pinnacle in John chapter 18 because as the story has increasingly become one that no one wanted to unfold, no one expected of the Messiah, the reactions get more extreme. And John 18 is one of those fun places in Scripture that's actually, it's virtually a paradigm of different reactions that people have to Jesus when Jesus disappoints. That's what's set before us. And that's why we can take it in pretty broad strides and why it would have been a crime to break it up. Because John is saying, as Jesus' story unfolds in a horrific way, here are three different visions. The religious leaders, Peter and Pilate. 
And you see incredibly different ways of how they handle what's going on around them, even as God incarnate is being put to death. Right? The single most important event in the history of the world, these three groups respond to dramatically differently as they're disappointed in what's transpiring before them, and it reveals so much about us and how we respond to Jesus when we are disappointed and the story is not unfolding well. Has things to teach us too about how you may respond to Zach as he brings Jesus to you. So let's consider these three reactions very quickly. The first one is one that I know a little bit about, which is rage and anger. Right? Uh, we were returning from vacation last night, and a nice week in Florida for spring break. We got 20 miles aside of Shreveport right after everything had closed, and I mean everything, and we blew a flat tire. It was in the sidewall and could not be repaired. There wasn't a rental car to be had in Shreveport, and we thought we better get back since I'm teaching Sunday school and preaching and Zach's being ordained today. So we started to scramble. We pulled into a truck lot. We started unloading the car. The spare isn't where the owner's manual says the spare is. Right. You See, I see some of you men are so clicking with me. Right? It's Hulk time. I'm throwing things out of the car. The kids are like, well, what's going on? Don't talk to me. Move, get away, right? And but this is angry. This story isn't supposed to be happening. I'm supposed to be getting home at eight o'clock. I have things to look over for tomorrow. I have to make sure things are in order. I want to make sure there's no water in the basement. I'm supposed to be home at eight o'clock. Jesus, you don't know what I'm got going here. You, this tire isn't supposed to pop. Pure anger, rage, right? This is a natural reaction to stories that go amiss. And here we have a story where the religious priesthood has always expected the Messiah to come and say, yes, well done, good and faithful servants. You've done a nice job. Let's give you a place of prestige. And they're sorely disappointed that Jesus doesn't have much time or much interest for, for them, for who they are or what they're after. In fact, he spends most of his time engaging them in denouncing them and what they're after. And so how do they respond? Notice in verse 3, they come in violence with weapons, right? If Jesus isn't going to play, then Jesus will get slapped quite literally by the religious leaders when he answers uh, the priest's question in a disrespectful way. The religious leaders apply violence to try to co-opt, to try to force the story in the way that they want it to go. If he's not going to be the Messiah we expect, let's put him to death and move on. And yet you see that Jesus isn't threatened by this power. In verse 4, he says, Who do you, whom do you seek? And the Greek there could be translated, oh, that's me, here I am. But John's trying to make a very important theological point, because Jesus says, I am. And when he says, I am, all of those who have come to claim him fall to the ground. In other words, the picture that's here is Jesus is totally powerful. There's no question that he can handle the scene before him. And instead, he willingly and sacrificially submits to the violence of the religious leaders who want the story to go in a different direction. He says, okay, it will go in that direction. If we look at Peter briefly, we see a man who in such... Sadness is probably hard to even grasp, except when you're there, who feels utterly betrayed. He's participated, he's sacrificed everything in the story of Jesus, and now Jesus has allowed himself to be captured. Peter was ready to defend himself, to fight to the death on behalf of Jesus, and Jesus says no, heals the man's ear, and willingly is captured 
to go down a road that can't end anywhere good. And now if you're Peter, what are you thinking? How, how could Jesus do this? What is he? He's betrayed us. He was promising life and joy and things to come, and none of it's happening now. And in his betrayal, he decides that the warmth of a fire is more important than actually identifying with church. You know, guys, God's grace is often so surprising. We're in this truck lot. By the way, the technology probably saved us from being really injured in this blowout, but that aside, we're in the truck lot, and uh, a, tr- a sweet truck driver comes over to help us. This pathetic family, me trying to work this jack, and I think he just thought the whole scene was probably so sad that he came over and started to help and was a sweet, sweet man, and, and, and we're chatting, and, uh, and he brings God up. And I said, well, okay, if you put God on the table, let, let's talk about God. And shared with him that I was a pastor and we began so I, and it's really funny. Um, one of the things that Zach will get to experience in spades now is when you're in a social setting and you say, Yeah, I'm a pastor, one of two things happens. They get away from you as quickly as possible and are, are thinking about how many swear words they've used in the last thirty minutes <laughs> and feel very guilty. Or uh, quite the opposite happens, oh, I need to share with you the last 20 years of my life. And all the, and that's what happened between me and the truck driver. And he started to pour out his life. And what was, it was a great opportunity to, to talk about God and faith with him. But, um, he said, you know, I walk with God sometimes and I'm close to him sometimes, but it's so hard to stay there. And so often, you know, I've been through a divorce and I've been alienated from the sons in my first marriage and these things have happened. That when, uh, that when the story goes into a bad place, I find myself withdrawing from Jesus. And, and thinking about the sermon, of course, on my own, I was like, oh yeah, you're Peter. Right? And you're any of us who when the story goes in a direction that we don't like it, and we feel betrayed by the one who we, we think is supposed to be loving us in the way we perceive his love to be offered, we, we draw, we pull away from him. And in do so doing, we betray him. We don't, we don't trust that his agenda is bigger. So that's the religious leaders, that's Peter. And then you've got Pilate. John is really interesting because John, unlike the other Gospels, has put the real trial with the religious leaders earlier in his Gospel. So you don't get the big trial about where Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. In fact, John doesn't seem interested in that at all. He spends four times as much time with Pilate and goes out of his way to mention there were Roman soldiers coming, not just religious tools of the religious leaders coming to claim Jesus. That John's real intent seems to be saying, listen, the question here at the core for everyone who's reading my gospel is who is king? Who really is that authority? He wants to say the issue wasn't simply for Israel. It was if Rome is the power of the day, then the question is who is the king? And that's, of course, the question that Pilate is asking. And Pilate's in a hard place as he asks, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate wasn't a Jew. He's a, a... an official in a Roman system put over a section near the Mediterranean that was an important trade route for Rome. Do you know what was the most important thing that passed through Israel? Corn. Corn was grown in abundance in Egypt. Rome didn't have the ability to feed its own population. And so they imported corn from Rome. And so if the corn didn't get there, the peasants couldn't eat, the peasants rioted, Rome was in an uproar. So Pilate played a fairly important position, but really his only role was to ensure the delivery of grain stuffs to Rome. If he did that, he's in good stead. If he doesn't, he's in bad. 
And now you have a political climate with an upstart person who's asserted to be claiming to be king. Right? What do you think is his agenda? You're a king, you're not king, you're claiming to be king. I don't really care what's going on here. You see his cynicism in the question, what is truth? Listen, I serve Rome, which has a pantheon of gods. We're surrounded by different countries with different gods. You're debating whether he's king or not. I couldn't really care less. You're a small people group that doesn't matter at all in the grandscape of Rome. So he says, I can, I'll fix this problem. Jesus isn't guilty of anything. You release somebody once a year, right? Release him. Be gracious. Offer forgiveness. And instead, of course, they choose Barabbas, which had to be shocking and surprising to Pilate that it would go that direction. But in his cynicism, he says, I'll just, I'll mediate this. I'll massage it. And it will all come out just right. No problems. And when Jesus disappoints and his story he presents to us goes in a direction that we would not have it, the extra is added to Pilate's plate, something he wouldn't want to deal with, how often and how easy it is to be cynical and to create distance from that very situation and try to solve it in our own strength and with our own ease. My point to you this morning is really this, that these reactions to Jesus mirror our reactions to Jesus. That when Jesus disappoints you and your story goes in a direction that you don't care for at all, you know something of anger and rage. You know something of pulling away because you feel betrayed and you don't think Jesus is someone who's worthy of trust. And you know something of saying to yourself, I'll simply handle what's going on. What is truth after all? Yeah, I believe in Jesus, he'll get me to heaven. But right now I've got lots of very earthly real problems that I need to deal with. And so you engage it and distance yourself from a relationship through pictures that mirror our own reactions to Christ. The question then, as John has raised it at the fore, is, you know, all of the questions in this chapter are great. From the religious leaders, Jesus poses, says, whom do you seek? Right? That's the question. Who do you seek? Who do you seek? In the midst of your story and in whatever place you find it, who do you seek? And Pilate's question, what is truth? Who do you seek and what do you think is truth? The answers to those questions are what you believe saves you. What was Jesus' answer? Zach presented it to us last week in the high priestly prayer. If you have a Bible, you can flip back one page to John chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus' prayer for you, his desire for you is that you would be sanctified in truth. What does that mean? Does it mean to be sanctified in a body of knowledge? Of course not. John has gone so far out of his way to present to you truth, not as a body of knowledge, but as a person. Truth is the Word, but the Word is the Word made flesh for John. So truth doesn't exist in understanding a body of knowledge. It exists in having a relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom you should seek, the one who actually engages truth with you relationally, the one who, if you're actually engaging, you start to understand the story in deeper ways and don't make the mistakes in this passage. 
when you see the story not going the way you want it to, and you get angry and rage and want to exert power, you understand that, oh, Jesus really does have all the power that's necessary. He makes the soldier stumble. And if he's not using it at this time, perhaps, perhaps he's not using it because he's intending to lay down his life to conquer sin and death. You think yourself so wise as to know all the plans and agendas of Jesus in your life? Or for Peter, who feels betrayed, who can't possibly conceive at the moment, oh, perhaps I feel betrayed because the situation is actually Jesus is sacrificing more than I ever expected him to. He loves me more deeply than I could fathom because he's actually dying for me. Or for the cynic pilot, what is truth indeed? Truth is a person, and if he recognized Jesus as king, he would have recognized truth as a person, and in that, been freed from the meaninglessness and hopelessness of the pluralism in which he engaged. Truth is a person, and truth reveals how foolish our reactions can be to Jesus. And so, this is my charge to you this morning. Number one, don't look to Zach to sanctify you. It's not his job and it's not his calling. And when you do, it's really hard and crushing. The only person who can sanctify you is Jesus. And it's your job to continue to press yourself to look to him to be sanctified. Number two, If Zag does his job well, which I expect that he will, he will represent Jesus to you. He will be a shepherd like the good shepherd. Which means at times he will say hard things to you, and at times he will say things to you that you don't like, and at times he will make you feel angry and betrayed and cynical. When that happens... At least ask the question, perhaps, just perhaps, your anger and rage and betrayal and cynicism is not really directed at Zach. Perhaps you're really angry either at yourself or probably you're very angry at Jesus. And that's a good place to to land it. And number three, I want you to have an expectation of Zach. Right? This is your charge, and if you love him well, you're also going to, to realize that he's human, and that he's going to make mistakes, and sometimes do well, and sometimes do poorly. But in this, you love him well when you expect him to give you Christ. And when he doesn't give you Christ, when you get a sense that Zach is giving you Zach, pull him aside and tell him. It's the most loving thing that you could do for him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we marvel at your love. We marvel at your compassion. And we marvel that in the midst of the anger and rage and the betrayal, the sense of betrayal on those who even who were yours, and the nonsensical cynicism of those who would stand judgment over you and ask, what is truth? You committed yourself to the will of the Father. And so we pray for your grace and your wisdom and your strength and peculiarly your love that in the midst of 
facing days or weeks or seasons or very long periods, for some of us a lifetime, that things just don't make sense. And we stand uh, in the courtyard of the high priest with Peter. And it's very difficult to make sense of what is happening in our lives. We pray peculiarly for your love. That we would understand that your purposes and your agenda far exceed anything that we can conceive. We pray that you would massage our hearts in such a way that we recognize how silly our reactions can be. Open our eyes and awaken our hearts to that which you are doing, the work that you do. And in this, we pray that you would help us to be a faithful body, a faithful congregation, to love one another deeply and to love Zach deeply. And that means that we, uh, we don't expect more of him than he has to offer, but it also means that we expect of him what he's supposed to do. So help us to be clear about that from your word and to, uh, to, to understand, to know, to live in the joy that comes from that clarity. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.